Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, December 15th, 2010. Much to do today. Gonna be a long show. Hunker in. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll weep. You'll pull your hair out. And at the end of it, somehow you'll go, you know, I learned something. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy, bizarre, silly, stupid, and, well, just outlandish things being said, all in the name of God. It's as if people have figured God out completely apart from the Bible, or the Bible just becomes some kind of a weird way of, well... You just you just rip something out of context, and then you start building a theology on that, and you know start extrapolations of extrapolations of extrapolations in order to kind of figure out where, you know how God is. See if you can figure out how the how the wheels turn, the mechanism, and all that kind of stuff. And quite frankly, you know I I God is so different than I am that uh, I am always amazed as I'm reading His Word how it confronts me and smacks me in the face. And, you know, and w- there's a passage in the Scripture that says that, you know, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, His ways are not our ways, and His hi- His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as high as the heavens are above the earth. I mean, kind of a Rose Brorian paraphrase there. But the the more I study God's Word, the more I realize that is absolutely true. And over and again, we are to read the scriptures in context and look at the gist of what it is that God has revealed about himself in context. It, <clears throat> repeat after me. See, this is, uh, you know, that you know, that's it. I, I, I better turn off the mic because apparently the um, seeker-driven guys have gotten into my brain. You know how they always say, repeat after me, and, and they have you repeat the dumbest things ever? Yeah, it, <laughs> and 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 the text says, and nevertheless, and repeat after me. Nevertheless, it's just dumb. Anyway, but do here's the idea: context, 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 context. Have I mentioned context yet? It's like the the whole idea of context. Listen, 
God, the idea behind verbal plenary inspiration is is that God inspired particular authors to write particular words that conveyed specific thoughts, and those words were used as the vehicles for conveying those specific thoughts, and those thoughts have their origin in the mind of God. And so when you understand verbal plenary inspiration, what you really are getting to is is that the words are inspired and that those words were inspired to convey, to be the vehicles for conveying specific thoughts um, and revelations about God that we are to understand. And when you are ripping the Bible out of context and you are not interpreting the Bible within the guidelines that the scriptures themselves give for properly understanding the texts, then, I mean, then you are nothing but a ship at sea without a rudder, you know, blown here and there by all the latest winds of doctrine. And one of the things we chronicle here at Fighting for the Faith is all of the different breezes coming in. Yeah, this. if you want to know a lot of the dangerous breezes blowing through the church today, then you listen to this program, because the idea here is, is that, you know, by comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, it's a form of inoculation, if you would. Um, you know, in in our uh, in the United States of America, we have the Center for Disease Control, and you got those people putting on those level five bio, biological hazard suits and going into the lab, and and they pull out, you know, and 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 they're studying highly viral, nasty bugs and critters that you know, if they get into the human population. They could, you know, cause, you know, plague and pestilence and things like that. And I mean, anything from, you know, a, a real nasty flu all the way to the bubonic plague or, you know, things like that. Um, but uh, the idea here is, is that, uh, you know, is that they have different viruses and bacterium and things like this categorized. And they study them so that they know how to combat them. Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith in particular, this is like the Center for Disease Control when it comes to heresy, at least the current breezes running through. And so, you know, uh, every year there's a heresy season, and it runs from roughly September to the end of May, and uh, and that's when uh, when pastors are hard at work. Uh, creating their own their own uh, malware theology. Yeah, malware. You go, mal- yeah, I'm a geek. I'm a, I'm a nerd. Yeah, see, the idea here is is that when we think of viruses, they call it mal malware. You know, they're you know computer viruses, and these are these are you know, pieces of code that are that are designed to wreak havoc. And when you have uh, Billy Bob out there in in Frisco, Texas. <clears throat> think yesterday's sermon, you know, basically um, rolling his own theology and not paying close attention to what the text says, then what he is doing, whether it's intentional or unintentional, it doesn't matter. The results are the same. What he is doing is creating a malware theology. You know, and so what we do here is is that you know we introduce you to that malware theology and show you how biblically this doesn't line up and it doesn't square so that having been exposed to it it's an inoculation if you would that you're not going to fall for it 
And, you know, and so uh, this is one of those things where we hit such a variety of different topics from uh, the seeker-driven, process, uh, seeker-driven movement to the uh, uh, to emergent liberalism to the uh, prosperity heresy to whatever the new thing is. And, uh, it, and, you know, what we do is we listen to this stuff and then we compare what people say in the name of God to the word of God. And I'm not exempt. No, 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 no. You get to compare what I say in the name of God to the Word of God. and In fact, uh, periodically from time to time, you will hear me lecture on a text or, you know, I'll, I'll uh, put into the mix something that I've taught on in the past. And uh, your job is not to sit there and just suck it all up. Your job is to take it in, okay, and say, all right, is 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 Chris rightly handling God's Word here? Is what he says consistent with what God's Word teaches in context and the ideas that God intended to convey through the inspired authors? You know, that's the idea. And so uh, when you approach the text, uh, th- and this is one of the reasons why study of Greek Hebrew and history and you know and and all of that really comes into play when you're rightly handling God's word because um if you don't pay attention to what it says in the original languages or you're not familiar you're not conversant with the original languages you can draw an incorrect conclusion because what you end up doing is smuggling in you know, uh, modern uh, cultural ideas into the scriptures. You, that's an easy thing to do. It's easy to misunderstand what is being said there. And so, you know, it's important that the person that is your pastor is one who soberly, quietly, diligently, fastidiously, gets into God's Word, and he preaches on entire texts and doesn't just go, okay, let me just clothesline pick. I'm going to grab this verse out of context here, and then I'm going to go into this book that's four books over and grab that verse there, and we, and then and then just basically string together this completely discombobulated set of verses taken out of context that are that may or may not even be entire sentences you know half sentences partial truths and stuff like that and then use that as a means of of crafting their own theology when that happens what you have is a theological virus it's satanic malware designed to once it gets inside of the person once it gets inside of its victim it starts flipping off switches and and discombobulating things and at all all theological malware it does the same thing the results always the same it doesn't matter what the breeze is it doesn't matter if that theological uh breeze is coming from the north south east or west all of them are designed to do one thing, and that's to take your focus and your eyes off of your crucified and risen Savior who died on the cross for your sins. That's right. God in human flesh dying on the cross for somebody even as wretched and miserable as you and me. And rising again bodily from the grave on the third day for our justification so that when we stand in the courtroom of God, the verdict that we know is what's going to be said is not guilty because 
justification is that it's it's a it's a term from the courtrooms you know of you know somebody standing before the, the you know the king and the king saying you are justified you are declared to be in the right and you're going but but I'm not right I'm I'm a sinner yeah I know that and see this is the great part about when you really unpack what the scriptures teach about the gospel and Christ and everything he's done for you and by the way the scriptures are all about him. They're not about you. The scriptures tell the story of what God has done for humanity in Christ Jesus, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden when man and, well, Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God and fell. And God promises them a savior, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. That one. And so you follow his scarlet thread, royal bloodline through all of the Old Testament until we get to the preaching of John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, and the, <laughs> the last of the Old Testament's prophets paving away, calling people to repent of their sins and be forgiven because the Messiah is about to be revealed. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and he perfectly keeps all of the demands of God's law, perfectly keeps God's will. And from the moment he is conceived until the moment he is raised from the dead, he is your substitute. Living a perfectly righteous and sinless life in your place. And when he goes to the cross, he bears the sin of the whole world and atones for it and propitiates God's wrath. And when the gospel goes forth, telling of the good news of the pardon of God and the forgiveness of sins offered through the shed blood of Christ, full and complete pardon, all given as a gift, those whom God grants repentance and forgiveness of their sins to those whom God grants repentance and faith to trust in this good good news, and their focus is on Christ, not themselves. They are to take up their cross and consider themselves dead men walking and follow Jesus. How can they do anything other than because they are his, bought with his blood? But over and again, these malware theological viruses... Their primary target is to take your focus off of Christ and put it on something else other than him. you got to get your eyes off of Jesus. That's the thing that Satan wants to do, and he uses deception to do it, and he is a master at using the Bible twistedly to make it say things that it doesn't. You don't believe me? Then look at the showdown between Jesus and Satan when Jesus was tempted by the devil himself in the wilderness. Do you think the devil came to Jesus and just, you know, say, hey, I want you to do what I want you to do? No, the devil throws Bible verses taken out of context, twisted much the same way that he twisted God's words in the Garden of Eden, throws them at Jesus, and how does Jesus uh, parry them? How does he block them and, and, and throw you know, Satan's attacks to the side? He quotes Scripture right back in his face, and Jesus quotes it in context, correctly conveying what God intended to convey in those texts, and the devil is defeated. The devil is defeated. 
So anyway, that enough of my monologue. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's program. Got a lot of stuff to, to uh, cover. Uh, I want to do a couple of emails. Um, let's see here. Um, boy, uh, we're going to get, I'm going to do another Bill Johnson uh, thing. This guy, I get the feeling he's going to become a regular on this program. Um, Bill Johnson, boy, this guy is a gifted twister of the Bible and a, and a, and a, uh, an amazing spinner of theologies that aren't biblical, uh, all with the, all with an open Bible right there in his plexiglass, um, pulpit. So we're going to be listening to uh, Bill Johnson talk about how we uh, we already have an open heaven, whatever that's supposed to mean. And then our sermon review in hour number two comes to us via IHOP, not the International House of Pancakes, but the so-called International House of Prayer. And uh, the, one of the, 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 you know, like the main dude there, his name is Mike Bickle, and we're going to be reviewing a sermon of his entitled Guidelines for Prophetic Ministry that he preached back in the middle of October of this year. And uh, compare what he's saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And uh, got to tell you, I'm not impressed with his preaching at all. Like, not even remotely closely impressed with his preaching at all. So we got a lot of ground to cover. Make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers are in order. Uh, if you would like to multitask, if you're, if you have ADD or, you, you know, you're into multitasking, Farmville while listening to, uh, fighting for the faith is completely fine. That's not a problem. Uh, if you want to enjoy an adult beverage, it does enhance your listener experience, but understand the biblical prohibition regarding drunkenness it is in play, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So, uh, with that, we're going to uh, dive into the program and let's, um, get to some email. All right, I got two emails today. One from Sam in Adelaide. Adelaide. Uh, is that um, in um, Adelaide? Is that the Australian Adelaide or is that the... Um, is there another Adelaide? Anyway, so I don't... I, I think he's from Australia, but I could be wrong. I'm sure he'll uh, he'll uh, contact me to let me know that I either I got it right or wrong. But... Um, uh, Sam writes, and he uh, the, the the subject line read uh, some friendly advice. You know, see, you know, I get a lot of advice from people via email on uh, you know things that I should or shouldn't do on the program. You know, Chris, I love your program, but you know, you don't love my program. The but kind of erases that. But you know, when people do that, Chris, I love your program, but I wish you would do this or I wish you would do that. And yeah, you know, and so you know, I you know, I read through the friendly advice emails, and sometimes you know the critic, you know, the ideas are pretty good, and sometimes. Sometimes, well, you know, not so much. And, uh, you know, anyway, but uh, Sam writes and he says, um, yeah, I wonder if this is South Africa. No, it's, uh, it is Australia. Okay, looking at his email address, it, it is Adelaide in Australia. Okay, good to know. Okay, so um, if I am not, a friend of mine has, um, from Australia, has, you know, he, he told me that Adelaide is like a wine it's like wine country in uh, in Australia. If it is, I you know, I, I hope to visit there. <laughs> yeah, I, any of you, uh, any of you people who attend churches down there in Australia, especially Adelaide, um, you know, if 
if you're thinking about, you know, flying a radio personality down to your church so that, uh, you know, I can give a series of lectures on uh, on proper distinction of law and gospel, how to spot error in the church, you know, things like that. My, I'm a, my services are, you know, I'm wide open to you. Just <coughs> shameless, absolutely shameless. Anyway, Sam writes, he says, hey, I love the show, but... <laughs> but... Uh, I love the show, but I have some concerns. Okay, Sam, let's hear your concerns. He says, you know, I listen to the podcast on my daily commute, and I'm pretty sure it will lead to a traffic violation at some point. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, uh, you know, you're probably right. You know, um, I, you know, I haven't really even considered this, Sam, the idea that somebody m- may break traffic laws while listening to the program. He says, so for your own sake, please consider putting a disclaimer at the beginning of your program for people operating vehicles or heavy machinery. Uh, you might also uh, want to consider warning people with heart conditions and high blood pressure. Yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. Um I'm going to put a challenge out there for you, okay? Uh, those of you who you know who think that you 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 can put together a, a nice soundbite for me, I would like one of my listeners to create an MP3 file with your own voice. I don't care if it's male or female, but uh, basically, I want you to come up with it. It, I, it needs to sound like. Uh, here in the United States, when you buy a pack of cigarettes, not that I smoke cigarettes, I don't, but when you buy a pack of cigarettes, they have like a Surgeon General's warning on it. You know, uh, Surgeon warning, smoking cigarettes causes uh, a third eyeball to appear in your forehead. You know, things like that. Uh, if you could, if somebody would record to me a, a warning or a disclaimer, um, you know, that basically says uh, that, uh, you know, uh, please be careful. You know, something the effect of listening to Fighting for the Faith while driving, uh, uh, you know, driving a vehicle or heavy machinery, or people with a heart condition or high blood pressure. You know, could con- could lead to bodily harm, damage, or death. Think- things like that. Um, if you record it and send it to me as an MP3 file, um, I-, I would love to play something like that. And uh, and I- I'm open to you know, if-, if a few of you want to put this together. I can put the different ones into rotation. So uh, I, I think this would be a great idea. Sam, I appreciate the thought here, and um, I, I do think that's important. And, uh, again, any of you uh, any of you listeners down in uh, New Zealand or Australia, you know, if you'd like me to come down and, you know, it, invite my wife and I down to Australia or New Zealand to, you know, to teach, you know, for an extended period of time, you know, maybe, you know, four, three or four nights, you know, on <clears throat> theology and things like that, I'd be happy. I, I My services are at your disposal. <laughs> Because I can't afford to do that. <laughs> you want to fly me down there? I'll come down there and teach. No problemo. I'd look forward to it. <sighs> shameless, 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 shameless. I really need to repent. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, one more email before the break. Uh, Ted writes, and he's from Fairfield, Alabama. And Ted from Fairfield, Alabama. He says, Dear Chris Rosebro, well, this is formal. Uh, he says, I, too, enjoyed watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom back in the late 60s and the early 70s. Word up, dude. Yeah, th- that was one. Of, yeah, I, that was a program I did make sure to watch. He says, specifically, I enjoyed the way Mr. Perkins always left the dangerous drudge work to his associate. It was, it, what's his associate's name? Sam Fowler? Fowler was it? I forget his name. Fowler. I think his name was Fowler. 
Anyways, he says he left the dangerous drudge work to his associate and then retired into the camp tent for some banana daiquiris. Really? <laughs> I'm having a hard time picturing um, Marlon Perkins with a banana daiquiri. Maybe he was using it as embalming fluid. I don't know. Anyway, he says, but that's not important right now. What is important is the striking similarity between the voice of Marlon Perkins of, and, and one of your favorite targets on Fighting for the Faith, none other than the third eagle of the apocalypse, William Tapley. If you don't believe me, dial up a YouTube video from Wild Kingdom, then listen to the third eagle, and you will see, actually, you will see, actually, you will hear what it is I'm trying to say. Okay, well... Ted, let's take a listen. Okay, well, you know, while doing my program prep, I decided that I would queue up a uh, a Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom episode, uh, and uh, with the had Marlon Perkins actually speaking in it, and uh, and uh, compare it to the voice of uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse. Now, even though I'm playing the third eagle of the apocalypse here in this segment, I'm not going to play the William Tapley update music because this is not a William Tapley update. This is just simply a comparison of the uh, the vocal intonations of uh, Marlon Perkins and William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse. So yeah, let, let's uh, let's start with Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. The name of this uh, of this particular episode is Myths and superstitions and you can watch this at youtube.com forward slash wild kingdom tv just gotta play the music for it i mean this is taking me back to my childhood Woo! Man, it's I see this and the only and I, I I I remember watching this around Christmas time and seeing the commercial for you know GI Joe with a kung fu grip you know and this no it's Jim Fowler I'm I'm looking at the video it's not Sam Fowler it's Jim Fowler <sighs> memory. To explore and explode myths and superstitions in the Wild Kingdom, here is Marlon Perkins from Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo. Hello. Welcome to Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. For centuries, Africans and Asians have believed that the rhinoceros horn is a powerful antidote against poisons. Many of them still believe that legend. As many North Americans believe in legends about owls. They believe, for example, that the call or the hoot of an owl is an ill omen. And they also believe that because owls face you and watch you and will turn their head when you move around them, that if you go clear around them, you can cause them to wring their own neck. Okay, now, <laughs> quite a subject. Now, let's compare the, his voice to William Tapley. Here's the third eagle of the apocalypse. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. On this program, I want to solve the mystery of the woman clothed with a sun in chapter 12, verse 1 of the book of Revelations. Okay, let's do a little more comparative work here. Here's an American great horned owl. Let's see. They turn their head because they can't turn their eyes. Now, watch closely. 
That's the action that most people have missed. The fact that they will turn their head back again very quickly. Okay, well, another sample here. Does this vision occur at nighttime or daytime or sometime in between? And I asked this question in my last video, and I got quite a few responses, and half of you got it correct. This vision occurs at night. And one of you, 22 July 1969, even got the hour correct. And this is what he said. I think that Revelation 12.1 occurs at midnight because of the 12 stars. Okay, another sample here. Yet many people still believe the legend. Just as the caveman who drew the original uh, drawing on his cave of these mammoths believed in legends too. He believed that to draw a picture of an animal gave him some power over that animal. And between his time and our time, many legends and superstitions have uh, appeared and disappeared. Okay, one more. Here's the third eagle again. Well, you are correct, 22 July 1969, but I'm not sure if that is the reason. The reason it occurs at midnight is because 12 is an end times number, and midnight signifies the end times. <clears throat> now, Ted, I, I I took the time here to you know to give us several samples, and um, hmm, I I got to tell you, um, just listening to their voices, um, I can I can see how you think that there's a similarity, but I don't think that there's a striking similarity. I think that if if you were to line people up and put a blindfold on them and say, okay, which is the third eagle of the apocalypse and which is Marlon Perkins? I think that they'd be able to really easily spot the difference. Marlon Perkins, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, sounds like he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and that's all I have to say. Now, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We will be right back. Good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around. 
How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. The Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Well, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. (laughs) And just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, malware theology is running rampant in the church. This program is like virus protection. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means, well, it means as we uh, draw towards the end of the year and the Christmas holiday and things like that, uh, as you're thinking about giving gifts to folks, uh, have you considered giving the gift of uh, fighting for the faith? And you're thinking, uh, you, uh, what do you mean? I listen to the program all the time. What do you mean giving the gift of fighting for the faith? Well, it's real simple. Here, here's the idea. This is that this is listener-supported radio. That means if you're listening right now, then uh, then I'm basically doing my job in good faith. And what I mean by that is, is that I'm doing the production work, I'm doing the research, doing the biblical study, and uh, doing the job of bringing fighting for the faith to you on a daily basis so that you can... 
know what the dangerous doctrines are out there, how to refute them biblically, how to grow in Christ and Him crucified for our sins, how to listen for good sermons, bad sermons, and all the things that we do here, that I do here, as a, you know, this is a teaching uh, ministry, if you would, and if you're growing and benefit from it, uh, from it if you're it, it, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm doing this all in good faith with the understanding that I'm communicating to you honestly. This is, I can't do what I do without your financial support. So as we are approaching the end of the year and the uh, in the uh, Christmas season and things like that, this is a great time for you to express your gratitude by partnering with us and giving the gift of fighting for the faith, not only back to yourself, but also giving it to other people, because the audience continues to grow here at Fighting for the Faith at, at quite a quite a healthy clip. And as a result of it, uh, you know, um, our, our budget every year uh, goes up, and uh, without your generous uh, support and financial contributions, we can't do what we do here. And so if you haven't supported us in the past, this would be a great time for you to begin doing it. And I know that for some of you, times are financially difficult, and uh, which is one of the reasons why we have our crew membership option. Our crew membership option, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, one of the buttons you'll see that it says join our crew. It allows you to automatically set up uh, a monthly payment where you will contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And what that does is that the more people that join that, and the thing is is that you know it's, it's silly for me to even set a target anymore because our expenses every month go up incrementally. And so, you know, it, it, there's uh, budgeting for this uh, for this endeavor. It, it's like chasing after a moving car, and you're behind it, going, "Wait, <laughs> wait, <laughs> I'm trying to keep up." Anyway, so that being the case, is is that the more people that join our crew, it levels out on a month to month basis. It makes it so that we can anticipate that we are going to get in a certain amount of money every month, so that we can pay our bills. Uh, pay our salaries and uh, and you know basically meet our monthly expenses every month as they as they come in every month and as they continue to grow, and of course if you would like to make a one time contribution or you know specify the amount that you would like to contribute you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can uh, make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box five zero eight Fishers Indiana zip code four six zero three eight. All right, moving along here. Um, let's see. We've done this. We've done that. Hey, I'm just looking at uh, the things that I need to uh, uh, that I want to accomplish here. You know, real. Uh, you know, I'll save that for tomorrow. All right. Put your thinking caps on. Get your Bibles out. Um, well, I don't even know why you need it. In fact, just for as a visual aid, if you are in a place where you have access to your Bible. Take it, and what I'd like you to do is open it to, like, John chapter 15, and open it up, and then I want you to put it within arm's reach, but I don't want you to read it. Yeah, I just want you to have it there. Um, and the reason why I want you to do that is so that you have some kind of a visual aid as to what's going on in this particular segment here, is is that uh, Bill Johnson is um, going to be doing pretty much the same thing. And, and this is one of the tactics of those who are engaging in biblical deception, is they have an open Bible within arm's distance, but they don't ever really get around to really, truly reading any of the passages in context so that you can know what God's Word says, what God has revealed about himself in his Word. And so the Bible is there open to give the pretext 
to give the illusion, to give the person, the un, the unsuspecting dupe, the impression, oh, I'm hearing biblical preaching. No, you ain't. So uh, <laughs> with that in mind, uh, <clears throat> here is um, um, Bill Johnson. Um, I think the biggest enemy to prayer isn't actually the devil. I, now, he is obviously an enemy to prayer, but I think... I think we could pretty much mess. Now I got to stop there. Um, did you? We're only five seconds into this little soundbite. Um, did you catch the important words there? The really key words. I think when you hear a pastor say "I think," or you hear a pastor say "I feel that," "I think that," then you should immediately in your mind flag the next statement and go, "Okay, what he's going with this." person is doing at this point is speculating. Now, I understand from time to time that you know, a pastor will be asked a question and he doesn't have a ready answer biblically. In those situations, the best thing to do is to say, you know, I don't know. I, mm, yeah, not sure. I, I'm not familiar with any passages in the scripture that where God has answered this question. Okay. So, that that's the best thing to do. Second best thing to do is uh, to piggyback. You know, this is not probably you know it's best if you don't go this route. But if you if you need to, you just basically go along the lines of, you know, I'm not again. I, I, the Bible doesn't say this, so I'm I'm going to have to speculate, and I'm going to bring in what I know about God and what He's revealed about Himself and what His character is in order to answer this question. But when a pastor says, "I think," "I feel." Those those are those are red flag words. Okay, the the job of a pastor is not to preach to you what he or well, see the thing is, is there shouldn't be any she's what he thinks. He's the, the job of a pastor is not to tell you what he thinks. The job of the pastor is to preach the Bible and to preach the scriptures and to preach from the text to re, to basically proclaim to us what God has revealed about himself in his words. What your pastor thinks is really not the important thing that he should be doing. We continue. Up by ourselves without him even being in existence, if you know what I mean. I think perhaps, the big, at least for me, the biggest enemy to prayer is the fact that we pray for what we already have. But because of our ignorance of what we possess, we don't realize it. Now- um, really? Where does the Bible... What? Hang on a second. Backing up the audio. I want you to hear this again. Um, I think the biggest enemy to prayer isn't actually the devil. I, now, he is obviously an enemy to prayer, but I think, I think we could pretty much mess it up by ourselves without him even being in existence, if you know what I mean. I think perhaps, the, at least for me, the biggest enemy to prayer is the fact that we pray for what we already have. But The biggest enemy to prayer is that we pray for what we already have. What are you talking about? <clears throat> now, see, uh, this is the reason why we're, we're into bizarro world. Well, he's preaching the thoughts of his mind rather than preaching the mind of God. And where do we find the mind of God? The Bible. So apparently the biggest obstacle to prayer is that you pray for what you already have. Could you, I mean, seriously, I mean, let me think about this. What do I already have? Oh, 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 I know. I already have a laptop. So the biggest hindrance to prayer would be for me to say something like, God, I, I really need a laptop. And God would go, um, 
Chris, open your eyes. You know, oh, whoa, <laughs> I already had one. Shucks, how'd that happen? <laughs> because of our ignorance of what we possess, we don't realize it. Now, I want you to think through that, that statement. Why do I need to think through that statement? It's not a biblical statement, Bill. If I pray for what I already have, then I'm, uh, then I'm not going to be able to celebrate an answer because it's not going to happen. It's happened. Now think about this. Jesus said in John 16, he says, you're going to ask the Father in my name, whatever you ask will be done, that your joy may be full. So in the Lord's economy, he has given us access to unlimited eternal joy through answers to prayer. What? Hang on, I, I don't even know what verse he's talking about here. I'm backing up the audio again. I want to hear Jesus this. said in John 16, he says, you're going to ask the Father in my name, whatever you ask will be done, that your joy may be full. All right, hang on a second here. He says that's in John chapter 16. We're going to, if you have, now, <laughs> got to be careful here because I wanted you to keep your Bible at arm's length. Now, <clears throat> time out, if you want to grab your Bible and flip on over to uh, John chapter 16, he said, huh? Well, yeah, let's see what, uh, let's take a look at that passage in context. <sighs> let's see here. I think this is at the end of, hang on, end of John 16. Um, Yes, okay, found it. Okay, let's let's read this in context. He says, John chapter 16, and by the way, he's referencing, he's not reading it in context. He's not actually teaching the text. He's ripped John chapter 16, verse 24 out of context, okay? But uh, let's read this in context and see um, what this says. A little while and you will see me no more. That's John chapter 16, verse 16. Why? Context, context, context. Let's put this back in context. A little while and you will see me... No longer, and again a little while, and you will and 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 you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, "What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. Again, a little while, and you will see me, because I'm going to the Father." And so they were saying, "What does he mean by a little while? It, we do not know what he's talking about." Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them. Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. But you will you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will uh, turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, I want to look up something in the Greek here. Hold on a second here. Uh, I don't even have my Greek open. How is that possible? Okay, let's see here. And uh, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, and he will give it. Hang on. Um, 
in the name of my father, uh, and he, third person, future active, indig- okay, perfect, okay, um, the, uh, by the way, the, I want to point something out here, okay, listen carefully, verbs and nouns matter, grammar matters when you're interpreting the scriptures, this is why it's important that you pay attention to tenses, and if you don't know Greek, you can actually sometimes backwards figure out what's going on in the Greek, okay, now, I, what, Phil, Bill Johnson just said, not Phil, but Bill, Bill Johnson just said is, is that, oh, uh, you know, uh, the, one of the bigger hindrance, he thinks the big hindrance of prayer is that we pray for what we already have. Okay, and he's citing John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. But I'm going to point something out to you. In the Greek here, you can't make this conclusion. Watch this. Okay, verse 23. In that day you will ask Nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Okay? Now, notice the construction. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Okay? In the Greek here, uh, it basically, Tom Patera and To Anamati Mu Dase humin. Um, basically, what this says is is that okay. The the important verb there is give. Notice it says in the English, whatever you ask, he will give. He will give. Okay. It doesn't say whatever you ask the Father in my name, you already have. It says he will give, and it's important here. The Greek verb there uh, for give is the Greek verb didomi. Okay, and the Greek verb didomi there is in the future active indicative. And you're going, are you really trying to teach grammar here? Yes, I'm trying to teach grammar because it matters. Okay, if someone's going to make claim, I think major the major hindrance that we have in prayer is that we're praying for what we already have. No, this text actually contradicts him flat out. And the reason it contradicts him flat out is because Jesus says, "Whatever you ask the Father in my name." Okay, that's the important thing. Not that that though in my name is some kind of a magic spell that you say at the end of a prayer and then da da God has to give it to you. No, that means it's given it, in my name means it's in his name according with his will, according to the fact that he's the king of kings and lord of lords and he has the ability to say no. Okay? But whatever you ask in my name, okay? He, he, the Father, he will give. Not that you already have it. The Greek verb there didomi is in the future active indicative, which means that you don't already possess it, but whatever you ask, he will give it. If I said to you, you know, um, come send me a request on, on Farmville, and I will send you a Farmville gift, okay? Do you already possess the gift? No, you don't. You don't already possess it. You will not possess it until I send it. So when I'm saying, if you send something to me, saying that you would like a Farmville gift for me, then I will send it to you, that's a future tense, okay? So this text that he's referencing, John chapter 16, the grammar itself absolutely flat out contradicts what Bill Johnson is already saying. And this is why it's so important. You've got to go back and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God and grammar 
matters. This is why understanding the biblical languages matters. What this guy's preaching, yeah, I don't know what he's preaching, but let me back it up just a smidge so that you can hear it in context. Here we go. Ask the Father in my name, whatever you ask will be done, that your joy may be full. So in the Lord's economy, he has given us access to unlimited eternal joy through answers to prayer. That's not what the text says. So if my prayers become wrapped up in praying for what I already possess... Well, that's funny because uh, the didomi uh, verb there in uh, John sixteen twenty five is future tense. It's not that you already possess it. If you if you already possessed it, it would be like in the what the pluperfect. There is a Greek tense for that. The you already have it, but not now kind of thing. Then I'm not going to live from the joy of answers to prayer. I'm going to have to learn how to have joy in the routine of prayer instead of answers to prayer. It's where we begin to elevate form and procedure above breakthrough. Okay, now, you know, if you haven't put your Bible within arm's length, put it back out there. Um, he, the Bible, he, if, he, if he wanted to, he could reach his right arm out and touch his Bible. But notice, I'm going to tell you this, he's not in front of his Bible. His Bible is off to his right side, sitting open on his plexiglass pulpit. What you're hearing is not biblical truth. This is nothing that God has revealed at all. This guy is just basically spinning and, well, uh, what's the term I like to use? He's rolling his own theology, and he's smoking it too. We, we embrace the lifestyle of discipline instead of passion and significance, instead of breakthrough, instead of answers. And what happens is we end up with a Christianity that is celebrated because of its disciplines, learning to do the right things. I believe in that. Discipline's a big deal. But Christianity was never meant to be known by its disciplines. It was always meant to be known by its passions. It's the fire that we carry until there's a breakthrough. That is the significance of what we have going on inside of us. I don't even know what any of this means. None of this is revealed in God's Word. I... It's like I'm hearing a completely different language, and it isn't the biblical language. I'm not hearing the voice of my shepherd, Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm hearing, yeah, that smells like a wolf. Hmm. We are a people that carry the spirit of the resurrected Christ in us. And when the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead took up residence in us, he automatically, immediately began to expect us to conquer something. Okay, where in the Bible does it say that when the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside the Christian, that the expectation of the Holy Spirit is that we're immediately to go out and conquer something? A chapter and verse would be nice? It's the nature of the presence within us. How do you know it's the nature of the presence within you? Where did God say that in his word? Is he immediately positioned himself to anticipate that which we would defeat and conquer? People talk about the kingdom, and they use a phrase that I like it, but I don't like it. I've I've gotten nauseated, and I'm I'm sorry because it's probably a good phrase. But the phrase that says... He's really close to his Bible. I mean, he's got his elbow on his plexiglass pulpit. I mean, it's his right elbow. And if he were to just to lift it and put it over maybe about four or five inches, he'd touch it. But he's not preaching from it. I just want to let you know that. Uh, The kingdom is now, but not yet. You know, I like the phrase because it's, it's true, kind of. But the problem that I have with it is I only, I only hear it used anymore to tell me what I can't have. And boundaries and parameters are set up that Jesus never set up. 
Let me try to illustrate this. We wouldn't, we wouldn't stand a moment for any pastor or teacher that would stand up and say, you know, sin is just inevitable. We just have to learn to live with it. We're going to have sin in our life. It's just going to take place. You just have to make room for it that when sin happens, it happens. That's life. Thankfully, we have a God that we can come to and we repent and he forgives us. And, but sin is just inevitable. It's just a part of life. Is there anybody else with me that would say we just get rid of that guy real fast or we'd find somewhere else to go? Uh, quick question, uh, Bill. Did you sin today? Was that inevitable? I bet you did. What's, what, what is he doing? Well, let me ask you a question. Is anybody in this room, since you've come to Christ, have you completely avoided all sin? No. So what is the gentleman doing? He's preaching his experience. Uh, kind of like you're preaching your own ideas. Yes? All right. That's what we do with sickness. Every time we say, well, just it's a sovereign act of God, and there are just some people that don't get healed. Every time we do that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? Hang on, backing it up. Let's, I'm going to point something out to you here. I want you to hear this. He's now, going to make, he's now making the jump to sickness. Mm-hmm. Listen. All right. That's what we do with sickness. Every time we say, well, just it's a sovereign act of God, and there are just some people that don't get healed. Every time we do that, we preach the same kind of gospel that preacher would preach if he said some sin just happens. It's just the way life is. Okay, I want to point something out to you. Bill Johnson is wearing glasses. You're going, so? Um, Bill Johnson does not have perfect eyesight. In fact, on top of it, he has gray hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's showing the signs of a body that is slouching towards death. Um, he obviously does not have perfect health, otherwise he would have perfect vision. He obviously is getting closer and closer to death because, well, he has gray hair. Um, so he's showing all the signs of somebody who's under the curse. And yet he's, I mean... I mean, if it's always God's will to heal, then why hasn't God healed his eyesight? You know, I have to wear bifocals. Yeah, that happened a few months ago. Um, that was a <clears throat> a real shock, you know, going into the eye doctor and the eye doctor going, "Hey, yeah, it, check this out." And, and, and you know, she put those big, those you know, oversized goggles on my head. You know, they you know, they, they you know put them over, swung them over, and you know, you say which is clear, one or two, you know, uh, two. Which is clear, three or four, uh, four. Which is clear, five or six, and you got six. And you, okay, good news, Chris. Oh, what is it? You need bifocals. <laughs> what? <laughs> ah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I mean, I can't, I can't even watch television without my glasses on, and my television is, you know, what, eight, ten feet away from my couch. I can't see it. And and when I'm reading, I've got to have bifocals on. You know what that's a sign of? Uh, yeah, I be getting old. That's creeping decrepitude. That and that's that. I'm sorry, but malfunctioning eyeballs is well. That's it's a it's part of a malfunctioning body. That's not perfect health. And here Bill Johnson is preaching to us about God's will that we always be perfectly healthy. Apparently. And he's got glasses on, and he has gray hair, and he's got you know he's got some of those deep wrinkles in his face, which basically tells me he's experiencing creeping decrepitude as well. I don't think for a second he has perfect health. Do you? 
we make adjustments in our way of thinking that actually allows for things that Jesus never allowed for. So does Jesus allow for you to grow old and die and for your eyeballs to fail? They get worked into our thinking and theology so that we make agreements with the enemy, and when we agree with him, we do empower him. Well, so apparently he's agreed with the enemy regarding his bad eyesight. It's not complicated. It gets complicated when I try to reason and figure out why this didn't happen, and so then I create a theology that allows for it to continue. It's not okay. Yeah, we, the bane of a theology that allows sickness to continue. Wow. It can't be okay with us. When there's a loss of a loved one, when there's a premature death, when there's some disease that hit somebody's body, and we don't see that breakthrough, it can't be okay. It's, this, it's the same kind of a gospel that would allow for that sickness, that would allow for that kind of sin to continue in somebody's life. Well, it's just inevitable. That's the way life is. So why do people preach that those kinds of diseases, sicknesses, calamities come upon us, and it's just the sovereign activity of God? Sometimes he heals them. My question is, why hasn't God healed your eyesight, Bill? Why hasn't God gotten rid of your gray hair and make you look like, you know, an 18-year-old stud? Why is your body falling apart? Hmm? Sometimes he doesn't. Why does that get preached? Because that's the experience. But it's illegal to preach the, our experience. We have to preach truth. And I agree. I haven't heard much of it from you at all. Let our experience catch up. That's the responsibility of every preacher, which includes everybody in the room, because we've all been called to declare and proclaim. All right. We're going to <clears throat> just cut it off there. Yeah, there's a, mm, this Bill Johnson guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this ain't, this ain't biblical preaching going on. Not only that, it's internally inconsistent, and he, he, his own body proves that his theology is false, unless, of course, he's just outside of God's will. You know, <sighs> Unbelievable. Somebody sitting here preaching about perfect health to me while he's wearing glasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. All right, we are up on our second break. It'll be sermon review time when we come back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The 
The Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Sermon review time here. I think in preparation for it, you might want to get your Bibles open and your you need them close close by. You need to actually be able to read them. We'll flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. That's where we're going to begin, but we're going to do our sermon review first. At least get into it. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And um, Mike Bickle presiding. It's a guy I've heard a lot about over the past couple of years, but haven't really taken that much time to dive into uh, what he believes, teaches, and confesses, and um, 
Nah, he's he's going to be in our regular sermon review rotation. Let's just put it that way. This is a guy that I think y'all need to pay attention to in a bad way. Yes, something's going wrong there at IHOP. What you're going to hear ain't what the Bible teaches. By the way, the name of the sermon is Guidelines for the for the Prophetic Ministry. This is part two of a series on an introduction to prayer and the prophetic. Preached by Mike Bickle. Now, what's funny is this, that, man, this is going back six, seven years ago. I had an employee, a young guy, uh, who uh, I managed at the company that I was working for at the time. He and his wife, I mean, they packed up from Southern California with their newborn child and moved to Kansas City to be part of the International House of Prayer. This is a uh, a thing that's open 24-7. They got praise and prayer going on 24-7, and he had to be a part of it because, you know, something groundbreaking and revolutionary is supposed to be taking place there. After listening to this sermon, my concern is, is that this guy, may have, him and his wife, may have gotten caught up in a cult. Yeah, there's... Anyway, let's... Um, Let me kill the music. There we go. All right. So without any further ado, here is Mike Bickle from the International House of Prayer. Have a little clinic time. I'm going to bring some microphones out here, and we're going to have words of knowledge from different ones of you to be released in the congregation for healing or ministry, and then we're going to pray for them. So we're going to have a little clinic time afterwards. So kind of have your, your I'm listening, Lord, be in that mode. Again, we won't cover all the notes, but uh, just look at some of the principles here. Talk about guidelines for prophetic ministry. Now, I have a book called Growing in Prophetic. You can buy it in the bookstore if you want a hard copy, or you can get it for free online. If, you, if, you don't, if you're not a hard copy person, you can get it for free because we want to get that out available to you. And I have a lot more information than I have right here for those of you that really want to uh, get the foundations of this and you're new to it. Acts chapter 2. In the last days, verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's the operative word. On everybody. On everybody in the, in the context who calls on the name of the Lord. On the, everyone. Okay, I'm going to point something out here. Acts chapter 2, we're, we're picking out a piece of Peter's sermon. <sighs> um, already we've got a problem. We're not preaching on a text. Supposedly, we're preaching on a topic, but the, the, the this is an interesting uh, place to start. In fact, keep put a bookmark uh, at uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and then flip back over to Acts chapter 2. Okay? Now, I, I, I'm going to play just a little bit more, and then we'll clean some of this up. But let, let, let's, uh, let's hear a little bit more from Mike Bickle. That are servants of Jesus. In other words, the whole body of Christ. This is an unprecedented statement from the Old Testament point of view. I'll get to there in a minute. Your sons, your daughters, they'll prophesy. Your young men, your old men. Verse 18, I'll pour out my spirit. Now this is going to happen, verse 20, before the second coming. This outpouring happens before the great and awesome day of the Lord, which is the second coming of Christ. Okay, uh, so this is got to stop. 
So he's using for his uh, launching off in this sermon, he's using um, the, the preaching of the apostle Peter. And I think Peter here is uh, quoting the prophet Joel. And this is an interesting statement that Mike Bickle is making. And that is, is that here we've got this statement being made, and this is all, this is going to be fulfilled before the second coming. To which I would say, duh, let's read the text, okay? Um, all right, let's back up to verse 5. Acts chapter 2, verse 5, day of Pentecost. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. If you're not familiar with this story, what happened is is that the Holy Spirit came upon the uh, Christians, and uh, they began speaking in other languages. And in Jerusalem at the time were people from all over the world, and they were hearing uh, these Christians proclaiming the wonders of God in their own languages, Okay. So there now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because as each one was hearing them speak in his own language, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking to us Galileans? How is it that we each hear uh, in his own native language Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and they were perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of, of the Lord the great uh, the uh, the Lord comes the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, I'm going to point something out here. According to Peter, literally under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at this time, if anyone wants to say that Peter wasn't filled with the Spirit at this time, yeah, you haven't read the text, is basically claiming that what they were witnessing at that time was a fulfillment of what the of what Joel had prophesied. And what about uh, the uh, moon turning to blood and all that kind of stuff? Uh, remember what happened to when Jesus was on the cross? Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit nervous at this point because the text itself in Acts chapter two makes it clear 
that the the this that what happened on the day of Pentecost was fulfilled that day in their hearing. And so Mike Bickle at this point is um well, you know, he's I'm afraid that he's uh doing something with this text that um shouldn't be done. Let's continue. This isn't something that's for another time. This is for now. Now, this prophecy had an initial fulfillment only on the day of Pentecost. It only had an initial down payment. Most of you know this is a prophecy that Peter is speaking, and he's quoting the prophet Joel from Joel chapter 2. But in order to understand the, the, the full scope of the prophecy, you got to go back to Joel 2 to see what Joel said. And you find out that when you compare it, and I don't want to go into the details now, and I have this in the book, but when you compare it, what happened on the day of Pentecost was only about just a percentage, just a, just a token of what Joel said. Joel said there'd be signs and wonders in the heavens and the earth and all over. That didn't happen. Oh, sure it did. On the day of Jesus' crucifixion, it sure did. In Peter's day on the day of Pentecost, a little bit happened. 120 people were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not what the Lord said. He said the whole earth would be touched in essence. Now, does it not say in Scripture in Ephesians that everybody who is a Christian is basically filled with the Holy Spirit and that that filling of the Holy Spirit is a down payment in guaranteeing our inheritance? Yeah, you see, as Christianity has spread to the whole world, has not the whole world been filled with the Spirit? And so my uh, point of it is, is that this is going to build and build through church history, and it comes to a crescendo in the generation the Lord returns. It comes to a fullness before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Paragraph A, all flesh. Everyone who names the name of the Lord, who calls on Jesus, is called to prophesy. Every one of you in this room are called. Um, where does it say that? Called to prophesy. Every one of you is called to function in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, got to stop there. Flip back to First Corinthians chapter twelve. First Corinthians chapter twelve. Okay. He just made the statement that every single one of them is called to mm, prophesy. Okay. Well, let's spend a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians 12. Hang on a second. Let me flip over there myself. 1 Cor 12. Okay. Full-blown teaching. What does the Scripture teach about spiritual gifts? Now, 1 Corinthians 12.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. This is good news. You, uh, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, Why does does the Holy Spirit give gifts? It's for the common good of the church. Okay, 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he as he wills. Now, just from this statement, do you think that everybody's called to be a prophet? Well, no, that's not what Paul's arguing here, is he? Is everybody called to prophesy? You know, that's not what he's saying here. Well, it gets even clearer. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, notice that prophecy is one of the different gifts given. If, based on this text, is it feasible to say everybody's called to be a prophet? Everyone's called to prophesy. Answer, not on your life. Paul's arguing the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Right. So verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ individually. You are members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, um, helping, administrating, and various kinds of languages. Now, here's the important part, verse 29. Okay, if you know the Greek, then you know that the answer to each of these questions is answered in the Greek with an untranslated particle. Okay, verse 29 asks the question, are all apostles? Now, in the Greek, it asks, me pontes apostoloi. Okay, now, the question is, are all apostles. The, that little Greek particle, may, absolutely indicates that the question is to be understood, to be answered in the negative. So you could literally, if you wanted to translate this literally, you could say, may pantas apostoloi? No. The answer is no. Are all apostles? No. 
So let me read all the questions. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So when Mike Bickle just made the claim that uh, we are all supposed to prophesy, I come back to verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 12. Are all prophets? May, uh, let's see, may pantas prophetai? May pantas prophetai? That's what the Greek says. The may indicates that the answer is no. Are all prophets? No. We've got a problem. And it's already, I mean, we're only a minute, uh, three minutes into this. Let's continue. Look what Paul said. I wish you all spoke in tongues. Even more, I wish that you all prophesied. The, the inference of all, it's implied there. I wish you all prophesied is the idea. Yeah. <clears throat> Why are you quoting Paul against Paul out of context? Okay, let me back this up a smidge. Hang on a second here. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Where do I want to go with this? About right there. Let's try this over again. I want you to hear this in context. No, in the generation the Lord returns, it comes to a fullness before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Paragraph A, all flesh. Everyone who names the name of the Lord, who calls on Jesus, is called to prophesy. Every one of you in this room are called to prophesy. Every one of you is called to function in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Look what Paul said. I wish you all spoke in tongues. Even more, I wish that you all prophesied. The the inference of all, it's implied there. Okay, now he's quoting Paul as if Paul is saying, I wish you all spoke in tongues, basically saying that it's the will of God that everybody spoke in tongues and that everybody uh, prophesied. Okay? Um, the, yeah, that's not what that passage says. Let's take a look at it. This passage that Mike quoted out of context, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And this is part of the extended argument, the the extended teaching that Paul gives on the gifts of tongues uh, and and spiritual gifts in general, okay? And uh, I'll skip the love chapter, which we're all familiar with, you know, know, love is patient, love is kind. That's all part of the teaching on spiritual gifts, but let's pick it up in chapter 14, chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters the mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, I want you all to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, is Paul saying here that he, his will is greater than the will of the Spirit? Because he just said in chapter 13, are all prophets? No. Are all apostles? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all? No. 
Okay, he just, in read chapter 12, it's clear that the Spirit gives different gifts for the mutual building up and edification of the common good of the church. And that the church, which is the body of Christ, needs different parts. Okay, now Paul is not saying here in 1 Corinthians 14, he's not contradicting himself and saying, well, what I really meant to say is that God really desires that we all become mouths or that we all become ears. That's not what he's saying, okay? he He's basically making a case that I want you all to seek after the greater gifts, seek after them, the ones that build up the church, especially prophecy. But it's not. he's not saying that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to make everybody a prophet. That's not what this text says at all, especially when you read it in context. And the context begins in chapter 12. Mike Bickle is not doing that. He's ta- like most... Bible rippers and, uh, you know, twisters, he's taking passages out of context and weaving his own, he's rolling his own theology and smoking it. I wish you all prophesied is the idea. Verse 31, you can all prophesy, every one of you. Verse Corinthians 12, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone. Everyone has the ability to operate in the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want to do in this session... No, no, everyone has... Every Christian already has a gift given to them by the Holy Spirit for the mutual common good of the church, for building up the church. Is demystify the process. Because we have wrong ideas about how this operates, therefore, we, we, we draw wrong conclusions. Our wrong ideas lead us to wrong conclusions, and the wrong conclusion is that it's not for me, it's for somebody else. Because we have wrong ideas of what the spirit of prophecy looks like. Phrase that, that that I use often is that it's supernaturally natural. It is there's a more of a natural element to it, yet it is supernatural at the same time. We'll get to that in a few moments. Well, when Paul, uh, uh, when Peter said all flesh, quoting Joel, this was unprecedented. Nothing was imaginable in the Old Testament like this. Because when he said all flesh, it meant all men. Because in the Old Testament, it was only the prophets. There's only a few men. Matter of fact, it was a fraction of 1% of the men. This is all the men, all the, the farmers, the workers, everybody. Like, whoa, that's a whole other thing. Joel took it up a notch. He goes, no, the daughters too. You'll be on the ladies. He took it up a notch. He said it's on the young ones, not just on the mature. It's on the children. It's on the young ones. It's on all flesh, not just the Jewish prophets or the Jewish believers. It's on the Gentiles as well. I mean, this was a politically incorrect word in its day. The ladies, the kids, and the Gentiles. They could all prophesy, not just a few Jewish men. Wow. And by the outpouring, by the, at the time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, then that's what gave the ability for the, the gifts of the Spirit and the Spirit of prophecy to begin to go global. Roman number two, what is prophecy? Revelation 19.10, it's the testimony of Jesus. In other words, it's what's on his heart. Jesus has a testimony. And his testimony is not only what he did personally in the past, because your testimony is a, in, includes what you've done in the past, But your testimony also is what's burning on your heart right now. 
And so by the spirit of prophecy, the Holy Spirit builds off of what Jesus did in the past and reveals what's on his heart and what he wants to emphasize right now in this hour in this building. Tells us what the emphasis of Jesus is for a particular place at a particular time. Got any passages to back that up, Mike? Because the passages you're quoting don't say that. Paragraph B, just to demystify it, most prophecy is human words reporting something God brings to their mind. That's what Wayne Grudem says. He's a, he's a brilliant scholar and a man really committed to the gifts of the Spirit, a seminary professor for many years. It's, it's words, it's our words reporting on something God brought to our mind. Meaning the reporting process is an imperfect science. God will give us something clear, but the way that we interpret it and the way that we report it is not always as clear as the, what he gave us. And so this thing called prophecy... Hmm. You know what's so funny is is that uh, I don't recall any of the Old Testament prophets having to go through a, a prophecy um, training camp. What I mean by that is, is that, you know, I mean, you read the Old Testament prophets, and particularly the minor prophets, it just basically says the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, came to, it, you know, it came to Zephaniah, it came to Amos, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. When God's talking, it's, it's hard to ignore, you know what I'm saying? And um, I don't remember them having to sit in the IHOP in order to, you know, to learn how to operate in the prophetic. In fact, if anything, over and again, we find that those people in the Old Testament who were prophets, when the Lord, word of the Lord came to them, it was highly disruptive. Um, you know, it changed their vocation, so to speak. And uh, being a prophet was uh, not um, a highly desirable job. Yeah, it could get you killed. Um, hmm. And so it sounds like Mike Bickle here is basically trying to make fudge room for the fact that uh, Christian prophecy apparently is just fraught with all kinds of problems and errors. And, and uh, you know, so whatever God is laying on your heart, you know, it, it gets convoluted and mistranslated. Yeah, let me back that up. I mean, what's the, I'm, why would I want to hear prophecy from somebody who can't even get the message straight? Let, you know, let me back this up so that you can hear what he said here, because uh, his description of Christian prophecy is, well... Sounds to me like worthless. Uh, listen again. A seminary professor for many years. It's it's words. It's our words reporting on something God brought to our mind. Meaning the reporting process is an imperfect science. God will give us something clear, but the way that we interpret it and the way that we report it is not always as clear as the, what He gave us. Yeah, I bet you Wayne Grudem is, uh, he would probably be really upset that you're misquoting him this way because Wayne Grudem is not making a case for prophecy the way you're doing this. You're kind of quoting him out of context to build your case, Mike. And so this thing called prophesying is an imperfect science. It really is because we, we're communicating with our own paradigms and mindsets the best that we know the impressions that the Lord gives us. In other words, if uh, one of the IHOP prophets uh, comes to you and tells you something, just basically say, yeah, I'm just not sure if you're really hearing that right or, you know, if what you're telling me is true because it sounds to me like you, you've misinterpreted what it is that God told you. I mean, no, no, no. You go back to the, uh, when somebody becomes a prophet, it's real simple. 
The biblical standard of a prophet is is that 100% of the time what they tell you has to be true, otherwise it's not the word of the Lord. In Israel, when somebody would claim to be a prophet and they came to you and told you something that God didn't tell you, uh, that, that well, basically, and it didn't come to pass, you're to stone that person. The biblical standard for prophets has not changed. If you're a prophet and you're claiming that God's talking to you, you have to be right 100% of the time. Yeah, that's the standard, the biblical one. The Holy Spirit conveys ideas to our minds or, or impressions, and we can com- communicate it in, in contemporary language the best that we know how to communicate it. There's a mixture of God's words and our words because he doesn't give us just uh, necessarily, I mean, occasionally it happens. It's not like we're dictating. It's not like we're getting a word for word. We're getting a feeling. We're catching a burden. And we got to put that feeling or that burden, that intense emotion into words to the best that we know. Now, sometimes the Lord will speak audibly, and, you know, it's, it's like a direct, direct sentence, and so there's, there's no guesswork. But more times than not, it's not like that. He gives a burden or a feeling or a picture or just a little bit of information without the rest of the information, and we're kind of stuck a little bit, I mean, not a little bit, a lot, going, Lord, what meaneth thou this? Like, well, what now? He goes, that's enough. Just go ahead and say it the best you can, like, ah, well, give me some more. No, that's good. Well, I won't say it right. It'll be good enough. Good enough? What do you mean good enough? To step out. It's an imperfect science. It really is. Just using that uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek. Some prophetic words may be 10% of what God really said and 90% of our interpretation of it, and, and that's, I'm not saying that, that that's an evil thing. I'm saying that's how it comes down sometimes. We get a faint. <clears throat> Let me, uh, by the way, back this up. Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting at verse 20. Let me read. But, okay, let's see here. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, starting at verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. This is talking about Jesus. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Answer, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay. 
Yeah, the biblical standard is is that whatever the pro, what, if, if you, Mike Bickle is basically claiming contrary to what Scripture says that everybody's supposed to be a prophet there, yet the Scriptures say that that's not the case. Read First Corinthians twelve in its entirety in context, and you'll realize you no, know, that not everyone is a prophet. And, and then also now he's talking about prophecy as some kind of a subjective feeling that is being laid on your heart, but we misinterpret it, and and it may not come out right, and we're doing the best that we can. No, 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 no. If you're a prophet. Profit, 100% of what you say has to be true. That's the biblical standard, period. Impression, and we're just doing our best. Now, other times, it's the percentage is a lot better. But I think most prophecy has a lot of human mixture in it. And, and in the New Testament, we prophesy by faith. And as long as we're not dogmatic and we say, this is what God said, we, this is what I, he, I think he's communicating to me, this is what I sense, it's completely worthless. I mean, what kind of prophecy? Oh, you know, it's, I don't want to be dogmatic, but this is what I kind of sort of think that maybe God maybe sort of kind of maybe say to kind of saying. It's ridiculous. That's not prof- that's not prophecy. That's just pure subjectivity and trying to hedge your bets. Well, maybe what I'm saying is wrong, but I think kind of sort of that maybe that is ridiculous. This is what uh this is how I want to pray over you. We can use softer language and not the Old Testament language, thus says the Lord, and, and with such a dogmatic tone, in the New Testament, we got to be have a softer approach to it, more open approach to it. Paragraph C, obviously, the first rule of prophetic ministry, it must always honor the written word of God. It can never violate the written word of God. If it does, it is truly not a prophetic word. I don't care what angel appeared, it is not from God if it violates the written word. And uh, so far, your entire teaching to this point, Mike, has violated and gone contrary to the clear teaching of the Word of God. Therefore, you're not acting prophetically, you're not speaking the truth, and what you're saying must be rejected. We continue. Paragraph D, prophetic spirit or the spirit of prophecy can be manifest in very dramatic ways or in very subtle ways. And we prefer the dramatic because the dramatic... Is more dramatic. <laughs> but mostly the spirit of prophecy operates subtle. And if we had our way about it, it would always be dramatic. And the Lord says, no, every now and then dramatic, an angelic appearance, an audible voice. I, I mean, a crystal clear, you know, technicolor, perfectly clear prophetic dream that's just stunning. You wake up in the fear of God under the anointing. Mostly it doesn't happen that way. Mostly there's subtle impressions or a dream that is a symbolic. It's like, man, I don't like the symbolic stuff because you can't be quite sure. And the Lord wants us just to step out by faith. Prophecy is released most often by faint impressions. And that's a stumbling block. And what I mean by stumbling block is... Where does the Bible say that prophecy is mostly done via faint impressions? I need a chapter and a verse that clearly says this. I mean, no, Mike Bickle seems to have figured this all out, but I'm, yeah, the f- problem is, is that, hmm, seems like he's just basically preaching uh, what his subjective ego thinks is the case, and he's not correctly handling God's word at all. A lot of people say, I, I want to operate in the spirit, but I don't want to mess with this faint impression thing. That's just, you know, that's, that's not sure enough. And it becomes a stumbling block to people who love even the ministry of the spirit. 
Lord, when you're ready to talk face to face, then I'm ready to prophesy. And the Lord's answer is no, you'll prophesy on my terms, not on yours. I'm the Lord, you're the little guy, I'm the Lord. I'll give you a faint impression, we'll go from there. Okay. Top of page two. Three levels of prophetic ministry. Number one is the office of the prophet. That's the highest level. And it's rare. I mean, there still might be thousands in the world. I don't, wouldn't know the number. But it's rare compared to the billion or two, the billion that are in the church and the other billion that are coming in the great harvest. The office of the prophet has a track record of regularly prophesying accurately about the future. I know a few guys that have done that through the years. Not once or twice, but they regularly prophesy the future and the events actually take place. That's, that, that's, that's rare. I mean, you can't do that by guesswork. They regularly have open visions, angelic visitations. They, they hear the audible voice of the Lord. I don't mean every day, but it happens, you know, a number of times in the course of a year. It's not, you know, once in a decade. They get detailed information, names, dates, future events, and they operate in power gifts. There's creative miracles that follow their ministry. They are called to build up the church, but they're also called to give direction and correction to the church. But even then, they should go through the local leadership team. When a prophet's visiting a, another part of the body of Christ, it's not their their home church, so to speak, but they're somewhere else. They can give direction and correction, but they, sh they should still first submit it to the local leadership before they give it publicly. Paragraph B, it's a, still rare, but more common than the office of the prophet is what I just call prophetic ministry. They receive very helpful words on a regular basis. I mean, words that really help people. They occasionally receive the higher-level words like the audible voice or, or the angelic visitation-type experience. Occasionally that happens. Where is this hierarchy uh, listed in the Scripture? Where is this hierarchy of prophecy listed in the Scripture? By the way, I have another passage for you. What if somebody prophesies something and it comes true? Should you listen to them? Well, listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Yeah, so it, it, just listen, okay? If he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall not serve and you shall serve him and hold fast to him, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just because somebody prophesies the future, prophesies something that's going to take place, doesn't mean that they're a true prophet. According to the Bible, God will allow certain prophets to arise who are false prophets who will perform signs and wonders, and then you're to test them by their doctrine. If they're not bringing you the biblical gospel, they're preaching a different Christ or preach, uh, preaching false doctrine. doesn't matter if their sign or wonder comes to pass or they can perform miracles or predict the future. You're not to listen to that prophet. 
this is the biblical teaching on this. And Mike Bickle, I don't know where he's going with this because he's off in bizarro world. It's not regularly like a the office of a prophet. And every now and then they'll have the power gifts break out in their life where a dramatic uh, healings will take place because a prophet will have that kind of uh, uh, confirmation of their ministry, his or hers. Paragraph C, the most common prophecy, which is for everybody, is what I'll call simple prophecy. That's a term that others have used over the years that I've heard. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, he that prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. Those are the three boundary lines of simple prophecy. And simple prophecy is where everybody can operate in the spirit of prophecy, of simple prophecy. It does not give correction and direction to the church. And a lot of folks I've watched over the years of being involved with prophetic ministry about 30 years now, nearly 30 years, is that people, I've seen them get mixed up. They operate in simple prophecy, but they want to function like the office of a prophet, and there's lots of confusion. They want to stand up publicly and give correction and direction where their regular ministry is mostly edification, comfort, and exhortation. That's the boundary lines mostly, or maybe it's a little more than that. Where does the Bible make the distinction between simple prophecy that we can all operate in and uh, the office of the prophet? I mean, where does the Bible lay out these distinctions? What section of the New Testament teaches this? What section of the Old Testament clearly teaches this? Not one. At this point, he's just making up his own stuff. He's rolling his own theology, and he's smoking it. They have prophetic ministry, but they're not the office of the prophet. They don't have the regular level of that higher revelatory kind of content in their ministry. And so they should not be giving direction and correction to the church in a public way. Mostly the simple prophecy should be given in small group settings. In the ministry line, praying for people. In friendship circles, there you know, there's three or four people. There's five or ten people, and they give the word of the Lord. In other words, they don't necessarily, the goal isn't to give it Sunday on the microphone to everybody. <sighs> this is crazy. Mm, where is any of this taught in the Bible? Where, where is any of this taught? And simple prophecy does belong on the microphone a little bit. In our context, the singers sing it all the time. We don't have it uh, very often do we have the congregation do it because not because the congregation could not do it. We got hundreds of people that could do that, but we get so many words up here along the lines of exhortation and comfort and consolation or edification that, you know, you get three or four of them in a meeting. You don't need another three or four. And another three or four, Paul said, even have two to three at most because that's as many as that people can, uh, can uh, incorporate. Now, simple prophecy, let's, let's look at that. Edification. Now, think of uh, in, a, uh, in a small group context. There's three or four of you there. You're praying for a friend. Or you're praying for a, a somebody in a ministry line. And edification, you'll give them confirmation that brings hope or brings focus to their life. You'll tell them a scripture. You didn't know it was important to them in the natural, but you just pray a scripture over this, and they'll say, well, that's a, that's a scripture, the very scripture the Lord gave me a week ago. You didn't know that. That really edifies them. I encourage people all the time to ask the Lord for scripture and just pray the scripture. So many times you pray a scripture over someone in a ministry line, you don't have to know them or just a little small group context. 
many times that scripture will have just touched them in the last weeks or, 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 or month or two. It's impacted them in a special way. So when you get a scripture that comes to mind, pray it over them. You don't have to say, thus says the Lord. Just pray the scripture over it, and they'll say, that was the Lord. Say, there you go. <clears throat> you don't even have to say, there you go. Very common to pray a scripture over somebody and it, to confirm. Or maybe you confirm their ministry calling. Maybe you pray over them and say, you know, uh, the Lord wants you to uh, 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 spend time um, with children. And you find out that the guy or the gal is a school teacher. You know, you're confirming their ministry or something simple like to do more outreach. And the person says, I've just said yes to the evangelism team. And so you give confirmation to their ministry focus and their ministry area. It really, it really blesses them because it creates focus and it creates hope in them. It's not real dramatic to the guy or gal giving it, but to the person receiving it, you know, maybe it was just a, a Bible verse and their area of, of ministry, but it, they haven't heard that from a stranger ever. Or maybe for five years they haven't heard anybody say that to them. That they, It just really touches them, and it's meant to. It edifies them. Well, it exhorts them. Sometimes the word is a exhortation. It just to encourage them to be to persevere in their ministry calling, to persevere in the promises that God has called them. Don't give up. Don't give in. Is really what it means. It's an exhortation. It's a word. Hang in there. And you think, well, that's a simple word. Everybody needs the word hang in there. But I tell you, when the Lord's blessing it, it touches their spirit and it exhorts them not to quit, but to persevere. And then there's another type of word. And these words, edification, exhortation, and comfort, have bigger meanings than the simple ones I'm giving here, but it gives you an idea. It gives comfort. It gives the perspective, God's perspective in a time of difficulty. When, a, when somebody gets a, just a little perspective that God is with them, in a time of uncertainty, it really helps them. So what, what, is ha- what happens is that often, I don't need somebody with a word of knowledge to do that. I just need to open my Bible. I mean, the gospel itself shows me that God is for me, that he loves me, that he's taking care of me. You read, uh, what, Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. You, you read, read the Bible. You want a word of encouragement to show you that God is with you? Open your Bible and read it. <sighs> uh, people get mixed up between these three different levels of prophetic ministry. And the one that they're most familiar with is the Old Testament prophet. And so they think, well, I prophesy to people. I must be a prophet. No, very, there are very few prophets, but everybody in the body of Christ prophesies. Because you prophesy does not make you a prophet. And the reason I'm saying that, because if you push to be a prophet, typically you'll get pushed back by almost everybody else. I've watched many people over, again, about 30 years of being involved in this. The people that push to be a prophet, five and ten years later, you look back, and it's about a hundred to zero, meaning I've seen about a hundred do it, and none of them ever get accepted. If you really have words, the people will tell you you're a prophet. You never have to say you are one. 
You never, ever have to say you are winning. If you're pushing for it, it's almost always going to go bad for you. I've seen, again, I've seen 100. I don't really know the number, but many, many people push for that designation. And I go, it doesn't really matter what the designation is. What matters is that your words are helpful. That's what matters. Roman number four, the difference between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. Now, this is an important point for people on the, who are not a part of the prophetic movement, meaning they don't like the, the prophecy thing. They love Jesus. They're born again, but they're not for the gifts of the Spirit. And one of the first things they almost always say is, yeah, but if the guy made a mistake, he can't be a prophet because if he made a mistake, he's false. And because they, the only paradigm they have, the only perspective they have is the Old Testament prophet. They don't know that the New Testament prophet is different than the Old Testament prophet because they don't really study it. They don't think about it. They don't believe in prophecy. It doesn't matter to them. And so they just kind of write everything off. Where in the Bible does it say that the Old Testament prophet is so much different than the Old Testament prophet? I look at Agabus, and I don't see any significant difference there. Where in these scriptures does it teach that there's this big difference of prophets? If somebody misses it. And in the Old Testament, if you did miss it in the Old Testament, if you were not 100% accurate, you were, not, you were called a false prophet. But there were only a few prophets in the whole earth. Only a few. I'm talking about the whole earth. They were all in Israel. But it wasn't just there were a few prophets in Israel. They were the prophets for the whole earth. Um, how, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, where does the Bible teach this distinction? A prophet is a prophet is a prophet. The standard's the same. I mean, that's like saying, oh, listen, you know, that commandment against stealing in the Old Testament. That's in the Old Testament. You know, in the New Testament, it's okay to steal now. Meaning the surrounding nations, if they wanted a prophetic word, they had to go to one of the Jewish prophets. There were so few in that day. I mean, in any given generation, the number was such a small number. Now, there are people with prophetic anointing in the cities of the earth. I mean, there's thousands. And how is it that the number of prophets means that somehow we, we that the 100% uh, accuracy We've got so many prophets now, but this 100% accuracy, well, we don't need that anymore. Where in the Bible does it say that? ...of cities where the kingdom of God is, is breaking forth in, and there are people with the prophetic anointing in all of these cities all over the earth, and so there's, you know, thousands and thousands, even millions that prophesy, but thousands that could be in the, even in the uh, office of a prophet. So the numbers are so dramatically different because the purpose is different. Paragraph B, they were 100% accurate in the Old Testament or they were stoned. They were killed. But in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, the verse there in the notes, Paul doesn't say stone the guy when he prophesies if he misses it. He said judge or the other translations say discern it. When the guy gives a word, the other prophets weigh it. Well, if the other prophets weigh it, then that means that the... 1 Corinthians 14, huh? All right, let's, uh, let's go over there. Let's read the whole chapter, and so that way we don't uh, get anything out of context. 1 Corinthians 14, flip on over there. Let's read the whole chapter. Pursue love and, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, but 
for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, their encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in a tongue... How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? This is an argument against the modern practice of babbling on in tongues in church uh, you know, by those in the uh, vineyard, uh, the let's name the uh, New Apostolic Reformation, all these guys. It, this the Bible completely forbids it. It just absolutely te- teaches against it here. Okay, so you yourselves, uh, with your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible. How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind." I I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak in five. I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the in the law in the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an an unbeliever or outsider enters and he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you." What then, brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But there, if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Now, the key passage here is let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. 
is this passage saying that because we're supposed to weigh what is said, that somehow that means that, oh, Christian prophecy, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it, it, it's kind of hit and miss. No, that's not what's going on there at all. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Diacrino is the verb there. It means to evaluate or to consider or to doubt. Now, the question is, is why would Paul say when, you know, when prophets are speaking, you need to weigh what is said? That answer is actually really easy. The answer to that question is really easy to come by. Jesus himself, Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Or Matthew twenty four eleven, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Matthew twenty four twenty four, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Mark thirteen twenty two, Jesus says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Okay, so. Second um, Peter 2, for false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So when Paul here is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said, he's not saying, oh, you know, well, Christian prophecy is kind of hit and miss. No, the reason why he's saying you need to weigh what is said and you need to show some discernment here is because Jesus himself made it so clear that many false prophets would arise to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, that when somebody claims to be speaking prophetically, you have got to compare what they're saying in the name of God to the word of God to determine whether or not they're a true prophet or a false prophet. That is exactly why Paul is saying, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. By saying, let the others weigh what is said, he's not saying, oh yeah, you know, Christian prophecy, it's kind of hit and miss and just do whatever. No, it's that's not it at all. The reason why you have to weigh what is said is because Jesus himself warned about these things and the apostles still had the words of Christ ringing in their ears when he says beware of false prophets in the last days there will be false prophets who will arise so when someone is speaking prophetically you need to particularly be on your guard that's why you weigh or diacrino what is said that's what Paul is teaching here very much contrary to the conclusions that uh, that Mike Bickle is drawing, I mean, I mean, what he's doing here actually falls more in line of you know. Listen, if if prophets don't have to be accurate, okay, that doesn't lead to peace. That leads to confusion. The exact opposite of Paul's conclusion: for God is not a god of confusion, but He's a god of peace. If God's a god of peace, not confusion then his prophets are going to speak his words and they're going to speak them accurately. And none of this, well, kind of, sort of, maybe this is what God may be sort of, kind of saying, maybe, sort of, kind of. We continue. There's uncertainty as to exactly what it means or what it's supposed to, how it's supposed to be applied or if it's the right word. And it's not as cut and dry as it's right. So he's a true prophet or it's, he's a wrong. So stone him, he's a false prophet. But rather there's 
There's a bit of ambiguity in it. The prophecy needs to actually be judged and weighed by others and thought through and evaluated because there's an there's an element of uncertainty even in the, Old Te- in the New Testament prophet. That's why they have to be... No, it's because Jesus warned that there would be false prophets. The, so the uncertainty is not about whether or not, you know, well, something somebody says maybe sort of kind of true, we can spit the bones and keep the meat. No, you're looking for false prophets to, to drive them out of the church so they don't preach false doctrine and heresy. Judged by other prophets. There's no Old Testament prophet... Elijah didn't stand up, give the word, and and then the other prophets go, well, let's weigh on it and pray on it, and we'll get back to you, Elijah, if we think it was right. Because in the Old Testament, paragraph— Again, that's false. Go back to the Deuteronomy passages that I read. The the children of Israel were specifically told to weigh what the prophets said to see whether or not what they were saying is true. Otherwise, we wouldn't have those passages from Deuteronomy that I read. Mike, what you're teaching is exactly contradicted by its scripture. FC, they prophesied only by direct revelation, meaning they heard the audible voice or saw, saw the open vision. They only prophesied by direct revelation, but in the New Testament, we prophesied by faith, we prophesied by impressions, we prophesy by we get a little piece of information, and then by- Where does the scripture say this? Where does it say that we prophesy by impressions, by a little bit of this and a little bit of that? By faith. We release it to the best we understand it. It's a very different context and a very different purpose, the Old Testament and the New Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets, they were assigned not only, but one of their primary assignments, one of their primary assignments was to the king. In the New Testament, there's an occasional prophet in history that talked to the king of a nation, but mostly the prophets through history and the prophets today, they... Again, the Bible doesn't teach this distinction. Jesus in the New Testament says there's either true prophets or false prophets, and we're supposed to beware of the false prophets. And the reason why the church weighed what the prophets were saying was to determine whether they were a true prophet or a false prophet. Talk to the leaders of the body of Christ. Most presidents don't meet with prophets. Every now and then that happens. But in the Old Testament, the primary assignment of the prophet was to the president or the king. Again, it's a very different context. And so when somebody says, he missed it, he must be false, because the Old Testament has it that way, they are evaluating a New Testament prophet or even the prophetic ministry by an Old Testament standard. This is ridiculous. Why is it that... I'm getting this sneaking suspicion that at this point he's giving this teaching in order to justify some false prophecies that he's made. It, this is what this feels like. We continue. The purpose and the evaluation and the standards are really different. Because there's millions of people that prop. No, there is no difference because Jesus in the New Testament said to beware of false prophets. How am I supposed to determine whether a prophet is true or false if Christian prophets are kind of hit and miss and sometimes they're on the money and sometimes they're not? Huh? Now, and in the Old Testament, there was a very small number in every generation. Again, we prophesy by faith. Every now and then we'll have an open vision. And by an open vision, I mean you see it like a movie screen in front of you 
and there's no guesswork as to what is being shown to you. You see exactly what the Lord wants you to see. You see it clearly. But that's very rare. I mean, it's, it happens all over the world. People receive these, but it, here and there. Whereas we get impressions, you get impressions, many impressions in the course of one day that are prophetic impressions from the Holy Spirit. Talk about page four. When administrating prophecy. There's three components when it comes to administrating prophecy. Revelation, interpretation, application. And when the, for prophecy to be administrated or, or to be, is to walked out in a right way is what I mean by administrated. For the, the whole process, by the way, there is a process for the whole process to be walked out in a, in a, uh, in a right, in a proper way, there's several steps to it. And it, it's in context to a team of people. In the body of Christ, it's team ministry. In the Old Testament, there was a little bit of that, but most of the prophets were lone rangers. Occasionally, there were the prophets with a school of prophets, a company of prophets, but mostly they are, uh, are set in the context of being lonely people. But in the New Testament, it's body life. It's team ministry. We're in it together. And the, everybody has the spirit. And where in the Old Testament, only the prophet and the king had the spirit. So there's three different components to the process of interpreting or walking out prophetic revelation. Number one, it's the revelation itself. It's the divine information. God gives the divine information. He tells us, you know, he's going to do this. You know, he's going to break through in power at this point in time. History. He gives the revelation itself. Or he talks, uh, maybe the Lord will talk about a, a person receiving a healing or a, or a word of knowledge about healing. There's many different types of, of information, from impressions, which are very subtle, to dreams, to open visions, to audible voice. But no matter how, what the information it is, God only gives us a part of the information. It's a little bit of information. It's only a part of the whole picture. And the Lord wants us to know it, that when we prophesy, we only prophesy in part. We only get a little bit of the information. Now, typically, the person that gets the information is called the prophet. They get the information supernaturally, either in a dramatic or in a subtle way. But that's not the end of the story. Because after we get the information, now we have to interpret what it means. The knowledge itself is not the same thing as the interpretation of the knowledge. Matter of fact, I've found over the years that the people that get the information directly from the Lord often are the worst ones on interpreting it. They don't have the anointing to interpret it. They have the grace of God to receive it, but their interpretations are often a mess. So the guy doesn't, prophesy wrong. The information was actually right. His interpretation was wrong. So then somebody will say he's a false prophet. Go, well, no, he's just a bad interpreter. He should have been in team ministry. He was never meant to do this alone as a lone ranger. Yeah, this is, this is an entire apologetic to basically justify a bunch of false prophecies that are apparently going on there at IHOP. And uh, and basically 
you know, make it so that people don't go, oh, you're a false prophet. I've got to flee. No, no, stick around, stick around. No, no, the Bible doesn't teach that. No, 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 no. You can be a false prophet and still be a true prophet. Uh huh. Bad interpreter. Look at uh, Numbers 12. Here's what God says. He's speaking uh, to Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. Because Aaron and Miriam, Moses' older brother and sister, there were the three of them, and Moses was the baby. The older brother and sister, they didn't really like little brother getting all these dramatic words from God. And so they said, hey, we get as much as you get. So the Lord broke in and said, hey, you treat your little baby brother good because I've chosen him. And look how the Lord describes the difference in the prophetic ministry here. He, the Lord said, hear my words. He's talking to big brother Aaron and big sister Miriam. There's a prophet among you. I'll make myself known to him in a vision. I'll speak to him in a dream. He goes, if there's a prophet among you, I'll give him a vision or dream. But with Moses, I don't give visions and dreams. I speak face to face. I speak plainly. But to these other ones, now here's the key phrase. The idea is to the, the vision and the dream of the prophet is he's making a contrast. The Lord's contrasting prophets who get dreams and visions to Moses who gets face-to-face direct encounters. And Moses, God says, I speak plainly. But to the prophets, I speak, look at the phrase, in dark sayings. The NIV says in riddles. Other translations say in parables. So when God speaks to a prophet in a dream or a vision, he speaks in a riddle, a dark saying or a parable. Pick whichever word you want. But every now and then, he'll speak to somebody directly, plainly, with no riddle, no parable. Now, when um, I- <clears throat> Yeah, Numbers 12 is about Moses. God speaking plainly to him. You're you're trying to take the application and stretch it. And this is like basically a small piece of butter that he's got, and he's trying to spread it over like five pieces of toast. Yeah, don't spread that way, Mike. First became acquainted with the prophetic ministry, which was with Bob Jones, 1983, and another guy named Augustine, 1982, 1983. It's my first encounter, and they. They gave me a couple direct statements that were proved to be 100% accurate. And I, I didn't have any grid for understanding them. But then they gave me a couple of dark sayings, which means riddles or parables. And I thought that was really off. They gave me like riddles. I thought, just tell me. They go, well, I, that's how God told me. I said, I doubt it. And they go, how much have you prophesied? I go, well, never. And, They go, you sure know a lot for someone who's never, ever prophesied. And my idea is, well, if I was God, I wouldn't speak in confusing riddles. I'd just tell the guy. And they point out this verse, well, you're not God, because when God speaks, he speaks in riddles. I go, are you kidding? I go, when did they put that verse in the Bible? (laughs) But anyway, this was a stumbling block to me in my early days. I went... When he speaks to, I mean, a major prophet in riddles? 
The prophet doesn't even know what the riddle means. He might. But often when it, un, when it unfolds, the thing, the circumstance unfolds, even the prophet guessed what it meant. In a, I mean, guessed wrong as to where this thing was going. It's riddles on purpose, and it keeps the people in a place of dependency on the Lord. And it humbles everybody. The prophet gets humbled. The people who interpret it, they always interpret it a little bit wrong. I mean, a little bit right, but they don't get it all right. Everybody ends up humbled. No, everyone ends up confused. How do I know I'm hearing from God then? I mean, this is just a formula for complete confusion and disaster. It's the old phrase, God's not out to hurt your pride, he's out to kill it. Well, then there's D, there's the application. The application is different than the interpretation. It's it's another distinct anointing. It's a different grace of God. The ability to apply the information. One guy or gal is anointed to receive the information. Another man or woman is anointed to interpret it. And another group is anointed to apply it. In team context, you know, between five or ten or four or five of, of, of the people together that are in relationship, we get the truth through the process of what God was trying to say. But it, there's a lot of dynamics involved because the guy who gets the information has to be humble enough to be restrained. And the guy that applies it can't be to, so intimidated by the prophet that they just kind of kind of give up. And I've seen uh, a lot of folks, they're so intimidated by the guy that has the vision, they just don't use any wisdom. They just say, whatever you say, I'll just do what you want. And the Lord answers, no, I want team ministry. I want this thing to come out through the process of a team. So here's what I recommend when a prophecy comes. I, rec- I recommend asking these questions as, as I've talked to leaders over the years. This is what I do, so I just give them the questions I ask. There's just a few of them here. Again, I have more in the book. Who's supposed to share the word? Of course, the most obvious thing is the guy that got the prophecy shares the word. That's not always the best answer because sometimes, often, the guy that gets the prophecy will share the word in a confusing way and he'll add to it and throw in other elements that was not supposed to be there. They're invested in it. They can sometimes. Come back to 1 Corinthians 14. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. What Mike Bickle is preaching here is an absolute formula for complete chaos and confusion. And what he's saying is not supported by the text at all. He's preaching his own fantasies. But I've seen many times they're so invested in it, in their reputation, their identity, they actually get confused in the process of it because they think this is my big hour, this is my big moment, or they're too worried. And, and so I find often, not always, not always, that they share it in the team, and there's someone on the team that shares the conclusion of it, not necessarily the guy who got it. So the first question we ask when we when we administrate uh, per the prophetic gift or, or we, we walk through the process together is what I'm trying to say. We've, you know, who should share the word? Who's supposed to hear it? Is it for a few of the leaders, all the leaders, a few of the individuals in the, in the church, all of them, just the intercessors? Or is it for the whole church? And a lot of prophetic people I know, they think every word is for everybody every time. And it, that's a disaster. 
They think, why would I get it if I'm not supposed to tell everybody? And that's one of the reasons the Lord won't tell them hardly anything. Because information is very disruptive. It's confirming and helpful, but can be very, very disruptive. The most divisive people in the church can be the prophets, the ones that have some clarity from heaven if they're not restrained. The amount of chaos they can cause is tremendous. And so the idea that... So let me see if I have this right. True prophets are the ones causing chaos and disunity in the body of Christ. Does that even sound remotely biblical to you? (sighs) Because I got the information, I must... I must be meant to tell it to everybody all the time. Wrong. Really wrong. Matter of fact, often the more, the greater the level of these prophetic revelation, the more careful we have to be about what we do with it. Because the fact that a piece of information has been given from heaven today doesn't mean it has to be shared today. It might be shared three years from today, but maybe there's a team of people that need to hear today. And in three years, those people get up and verify it was true. Don't you think if God is the one giving the prophecy that God would say, okay, now listen, I'm going to give you this prophecy, write it down, put it in an envelope and deliver it on uh, January 14th, 2013 to such and such a people. Again, this is just utter chaos. Truly given three years ago and has a way different impact in the future. Anyway, there's a whole lot of wisdom that needs to be employed in this. It's not just a matter of if I've got a word, I want to share it to, so everybody knows I got a word. And when I was relating to the prophet, prophetic people in the early days, I would always have to, not always, but I often was in this thing, the point isn't so that you can prove to people you got a prophecy. That's not the point of the prophecy. The point of the prophecy is to help the body, not to help your ministry. It was really hard for this, for a number of them. They go, well, if I don't get up and share it, you won't put the same flair in it, and I won't get credit in my ministry. I go, I don't care about your credit right now. I care about the body getting edified. Here's what I want to know. What do we want the people to do differently because of your prophecy? And I would talk to some of the prophetic people, and they really have clarity on it, and others say, I don't know what they're supposed to do. I just want to make sure that I, I say it. I go, no, I want to know what we want as the refruit and the impact of this information. You want them to obey more? Pray more, give more, work more, change your perspective. What is the takeaway point that edifies the body? And often some of the guys that get the clearest revelation, they go, I don't even know. I don't have a thought about what people are supposed to do with it. I just want to say it. And we had uh, uh, in our early days, which I tell in the book a bit of the stories, in our first uh, five years of our church in 83, 80, 45, just let's say the first five years, not that that's the exact number. We had about 15, I don't exactly know the number, but about 15 people in our midst who had prophetic ministries where many of them traveled full time. Their, their ministry, their prophetic gift was strong enough where they could go travel around and have a full time ministry. And I don't know the exact number that traveled full time, but we had a bunch of them. So we had all this. This, all this activity in those early days, and some of you are, uh, were connected with what we were doing back then, and it was exciting, glorious, and chaotic. Because I found the biggest problem I had was among these 15, some guys, some gals, some young, some old, they, there was constantly hustling and bustling and competing with each other for who the main one was. 
And that just wore me out. I thought, guys, it's not about who gets credit. It's not a home run statistic. It's not who hit the home run. We're trying to make an impact. We're trying to change people's ideas and their opinions and their attitudes towards their life. Let's go to Roman numeral six. Got to shift gears here. Now we're going to talk about how to function in words of knowledge, what to do with them, and some of the principles that work together with it. Okay, I'm going to stop the sermon right there. This sermon actually goes on for a whole nother hour and uh, don't have time to review it all. If you'd like to review it and hear the rest of it for yourself, it's at mikebickle.org and the sermon series is Guidelines for the Prophetic Ministry. Sorry, I don't have time to do a four-hour edition of Fighting for the Faith today. So what'd you think? Over and again, it's like every single passage this guy quotes, you can go right to the scriptures and show that he's not handling it correctly. And the conclusions he's drawing are 180 degrees opposite of what the scriptures teach. This is a problem. This is a deep, deep, deep problem. Because what he's preaching basically is a formula for complete spiritual deception. Where truth and falsehood don't have any meaning. True prophet and false prophet have no meaning. As a result of it, without being able to say, wait a second, that is a false prophecy, you just basically have complete and utter spiritual confusion and chaos. And what does this do again? It takes our focus off of Christ. Where was Christ in this sermon? Where is Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins? Where is the great testimony of the apostles and their eyewitness testimony to Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and for our sins, for our justification. That's all gone by the wayside, and you have everyone going, okay, well, let me see, I I, I got a prophecy, but I got to make sure that I don't overinterpret it, because, well, but then again, if I have clarity, I can cause confusion and disunity, because I'm hearing God correctly, And, and no, this is just one, this is utter chaos that takes our eyes off of Christ and opens us up for the worst kinds of deceptions. The folks that are at IHOP, they are prime targets of the latest winds of doctrine, and this is one of them. Open Bible and no discernment and no truth either. In fact, open Bible and what's being preached is exactly the opposite of what the Scriptures actually say. That is some deep, deep, deep deception. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. need to remind you we're listener-supported radio. That's right, visit our website. Please support us. We can truly use your help and uh, and, uh, in helping to reach out and continue to grow this important radio ministry. Fightingforthefaith.com, you got it. Two friendly yellow buttons. Pick one, pick one, and uh, support us. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>